occasionally with uh, Doug, Dina, and Gerard. Where I'm coming from. 15 years into education now, you know, what can I do to create this equitable space? And like, you know, what? And especially for those students um, that look like me and that came from uh, my community, I wanted to be an influencer for them, like for young people. Connect with more people whose mindset and goals. Alright, this is speaking educationally with... Uh, Doug, Dina, and Gerard. All right. I think we're up to like episode five at this point. So um, this is Doug Tim, principal in Newcastle. And uh, we just kind of kind of the three of us want to bring up the speed on some things that have happened in our lives. Uh, I've been coaching my son's basketball team and I believe we're four and two. I uh, had another victory last weekend. I think we were 35 to 22. Proud of my son. Um, I do think that it's all of my coaching, um, which I can take credit for. Um, I will say, and I'll leave it at this, I am more nervous coaching, even though his level of basketball is, I mean, he's 11. It's still, he's still developing, but my level, my coaching nervousness is way more than ever playing a sport growing up. Um, and I don't know why. I just, uh, coaching wise, I can't get over being nervous. So anyway, what else do you guys got going on? Well, just for me, uh, just family time, my niece was down from New York along with her son. So family got a chance to connect. And that's been one of our goals for 2020. A lot of uh, my family on both sides, we've just been trying to stay connected more and more. And as we get older, just making sure that our kids and our future grandkids all stay connected so that way we can keep that family bond going from generation to generation and my son he does have um soccer and basketball starting as well as my daughters i have to go to a parent meeting tomorrow night for their uh field hockey team they play on so it's a pretty exciting time i I like keeping them busy yeah keep them giving something to do that's what's up. I love that your family makes a, a goal to spend time together because I feel like that's something that doesn't happen as much anymore. Yeah, I've, I struggle with that down through the years. So going into 2020, um, I heard a message at church and it talked like towards the end of the year and it talked about, you know, connecting with family. And I really took that to heart and made that a mission and a goal. So like even every day, if I if I don't talk on the phone, it's like certain cousins and stuff. Uh, we'll text back and forth, just trying to. It's something is even a little bit like that. Something is better than nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so, you got anything? Go ahead. Yeah, I um one of my um friends slash colleagues um started talking to me about doing some blogging. So I am finally starting to get some writing done. Um, and my goal is to get another piece written this coming weekend. So I have, um, now that I'm generating some ideas, I feel like I can actually sit down and do some writing. Nice. Blogging, it, something I've gotten away from, but I really enjoyed it when I did it for a while. Oh, no. All right, cool. You got you to tag us in that when you finally start sending them out there, if that's I, what you're going to do. I definitely will do that. All right. So we are on this week. We're talking about implicit bias. What is it? What are examples of it that we have experienced Maybe some examples that we have growing up, uh, some things that maybe in the media and or in school, words that we use in school that kind of center around um, implicit bias. And then, um, you know, kind of going from there with our conversation. So 
Anybody want to take the idea of what is implicit bias and, and what are some examples that we've experienced? Maybe we should start off with just a definition. What, what do we think implicit bias is? Um, I've just always looked at an implicit bias as being um, what you like. It's almost an unconscious belief about, you know, um, people, about the way things function, um, that you are not necessarily aware that you contribute to. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, to add on to what she said, basically, I'm thinking along the same lines when I think of implicit bias that that those assumptions and possibly those racial stereotypes that you're unaware of that can creep into your mind and that affects decision making and actions and your perspective on things. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you the best example that I heard was a TED talk from Verna Davis and she got on, she's an African American lady and she was talking about walking down the street with a, with a, her Japanese colleague. And um, all of a sudden there's actually two examples that she spoke of. One of them was um, a black man with a hood was on the street walking and, and, the, and her Japanese colleague wanted to cross the street and she looked at the Japanese colleague and she says, what are you afraid of? She says, I've been dealing with black men my whole life. My dad's black. My brother's black. My husband's black. I have no problem with black men and there's no reason to be afraid of this guy. But then she says, and she flipped the switch. She, she said she got on the plane later, a couple of weeks later. And uh, they were talking about the safety precautions and the pilot came on the overhead and it was a woman and she immediately got worried because she had never thought about a woman being a pilot on the plane. And she's like, I'm, I'm wow. concerned about my safety now. Um, you know, it's something that, you know, I think we all have implicit bias, regardless of your gender um, or the color of your skin. And, and I think she really put that out there. So I thought that was interesting. That's a really nice example. It really yeah. is. It really is. I like that one. Yeah, I can't take credit for it. It's Vernon Davis. It's a great TED Talk um, that I used with my staff a couple of years ago about just trying to identify their biases because she, she does it in a really funny way. Maybe I'll put that in the show notes for this. I'll put a link to it um, so that people can watch that if they want. It's about 15 minutes long. Well, and I just want to comment very quickly, Doug, that I think it's great that you tried to have that conversation with your staff because I've not been in many educational situations where our, you know, our leaders have tried, at least attempted to, to start the conversation. Yeah. Actually, it was, it was a really good, you know, 30 minute PDA. It was, it was really good. And people had some, had some questions to follow up and people gave some pretty honest responses, which was good to say. All right. So what about some examples of, or experiences that you may have had of implicit bias that kind of further define what this might be for people out there? Okay. For me, just in my role being a assistant principal and dean of students, I see where it can come in when it comes to discipline infractions. And what I mean by discipline infractions, when you look at some of our state codes, um, when a referral comes in and how you got to code it, implicit bias, and uh, many a times is all over the codes of defiance of school authority and inappropriate behavior disrespect to a staff member because for example the the tone or the response back from a black girl is going to be different than other students so where where is that 
coming in when it comes to disrespect to a staff member with her response compared to someone with a with a different tone or different facial expression while they're saying it. So the, all that ambiguity um, is key when I look at those infractions and it just has implicit bias written all over it when sometimes it needs to be a further conversation of let's, let's talk about what happened from A to Z. And once that conversation is had, there's a high probability that a referral wouldn't been written because now when you get to see how what the adult said could have came off through the child and what the child said came off through the adult, a lot of it has been like communication that has been misunderstood, which lead, led to a referral of defiance of school authority and um, disrespect to a staff member. Yeah. And Dina, maybe you can speak to this too, but Gerard, I'm wondering is, so when I have experienced or talked with staff about those sort of referrals, a lot of it comes down to the public embarrassment that comes from the teacher or the adult reaction to the child's behavior. So if it's a private interaction and or, hey, come talk to me in the hallway about what just happened there. Let's talk about that. Oftentimes the response is different from a child of color than when you call them out in front of the group. Um, especially, especially if they're the minority in the classroom, um, because they don't want to be embarrassed. So I'm wondering if that, what role that plays into it or how to better help and support our girls of color. I will, I will tell you that the, it's almost not better having the conversation in the hallway. It's not better. At least not immediately following the, the incident occurring in your room, because, um, I mean, let's face facts. We all know let's go out in the hallway and talk means, you know, it's it, it, following the incident. We all know what it means. Um, and good point. I, I have to sometimes like explain to kids when they go out in the hallway with me, I'm like, you're not in trouble, you know, just so you're aware you're not in trouble. Um, but my big thing is not, and I, I've said this for years, I try to never outsource my discipline. And whatever issues that I'm having in the classroom, I try to as best I can to resolve them in the classroom because the second that it goes outside of you, you don't have any power left, you know, and it's, True. you know, so I, tr- I try not to do that. And oftentimes when I have the discussion, I try to make sure that I am not, that I am not letting my ego take over the conversation. Like I try to make sure that I, I keep that in check because you can, and, and I don't think it just has to do with being a teacher. This, this has to do with just dealing with human beings. You can very easily agitate and instigate a situation instead of deescalating it. Um, oh, and yeah. as a teacher, Absolutely. I can think of many instances where I have, you know, escalated a situation rather than deescalated it. And so oh. My, my next thought that goes with that is how easily our implicit biases will influence that. Right. So go ahead. So that, that's what I, I just try to be mindful of because, you know, in terms of implicit biases, we all have them. And I try to make sure that I'm being very careful about, am I, you know, am I letting this interfere with how I handle it? So I, I don't talk to a kid when I'm upset about a behavior. Um, or if I feel like that could very easily take the lead instead of my emotional side taking the lead instead of me having a conversation that's going to be productive. Yeah. 
I'll tell you, as an administrator, Gerard, I don't know if you feel this. Sometimes you get stuck where you have multiple adults watching you deal with a student who is, for lack of a better term, losing it in front of you. And they're watching you to see how you react to that student. And that's a really hard situation because you are the authority in that situation. No matter if it's the hallway, the classroom, the cafeteria, the bus court, it doesn't matter. And I always... I'm very cognizant about checking my emotions in those situations and keeping things as private as possible and trying to move them to somewhere where it's just a private conversation between me and them because it's already gotten off the rails. You know what I mean? We already have gotten to a point where this child is already upset. And I really try to be mindful of how do I model that behavior in that moment? No, I agree. Um, I know when I go, when I have to respond to a situation, my main thing is, I really don't even want to have a conversation with the adult about whatever transpired. My main thing is to get the student and the adult away from one another, the student coming with me. I'm always going to follow up with a teacher to find out what actually happened. Um, because at the end of the day, the student needs to understand that I'm, I'm definitely going to talk to the adult, but they actually get a chance to try to be truthful and upfront and honest first. And it's done away from their peers and, when you show up cool, calm, collected, um, and a situation may already be volatile, I think that I think that helps a lot as well. But you're, you're right. You're absolutely right, Doug. Uh, puts us in some very compromising situations. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, Dina, to your point, I mean, or not maybe to your point, but as a staff member, if an administrator shows up at your door, you know, we're, we're certainly watching how you're reacting to that child as well. So, I mean, it goes both ways, but it, it is something where <laughs> you you trust the relationships you have with your colleagues to see where you go from there. And sometimes Absolutely. you give each other a little eye, a little wink, and it's like, okay, I got this, and we're, we're going to go in this direction. So, All right, that was good. Anything you guys want to add to to that part of it? I can bring anything else. No, nah, you can bring on the next part. All right. So the next part is, so <laughs> those were examples of it. The next part would be, what are things that, that we hear um, in educational circles, maybe not necessarily, you know, in your immediate circles, but maybe here online, maybe here in the media, things that we hear that um, contribute to this implicit bias against um, different groups of people and or students. Um, I know the one that always gets me now, and I, I mean – at times you have to use this term, but I, I, this Title One, we're a Title One school, it just bothers me. And it's only been recently, um, as I've talked to more people about what that means. But I, I don't label myself or my school as a Title One school, although we are. Hundred um, percent of our students are free and reduced lunch, um, but it's for many reasons that have nothing to do with the amount of money that the parents have. I mean, I, maybe that's making any sense, but. I don't want to label. I'm trying not to label. I mean, my school is awesome. I mean, I think we're the best school in the state of Delaware by far. Um, we have the most wonderful, awesome students that anyone could ever have. And that's how I want my school to be labeled. I don't want it to be labeled as a Title I school. Are there other things that are said or even that that bother you all? Um, for, you know, it's, I'm in year 16. And I think for 16 years, um, any sort of phrasing around, you know, my kids can't do that has bugged me since, yeah. since day one. It's bugged me um, where what I think unnerves me so much about that is I really do think that most kids can do anything they're asked to do. 
with the appropriate scaffolding and with the appropriate teaching and, you know, to the best of their ability. Um, you know, is it going to be perfect all the time? Maybe not. Um, but learning is not supposed to be perfect at every stage, nor is it supposed to be clean and neat and tidy. Um, and so the idea that somebody has already established what their kids can and can not do before they've even attempted to assess them in some way, shape or form just really bugs me. Um, you know, and it's, and if you feel that way about your kids over instruction, then immediately my, like my sense of what else are you talking about? If you're referring to, to your kids inability to do things, then what else are you saying about your kids? That's going to speak about them disparagingly. And what are you thinking? If you're saying that out loud, yeah. what are you thinking in your head? So. Oh yeah. Because, because people that people will never say out loud everything they think. Mm-hmm. No, nah. agree there. I know. I just, I'm reflecting back on my time in the classroom and especially being a math teacher um, where I taught at, when you go to certain PDs or the instructional coach or the principal you know, they learn about new strategies or different things that other schools are doing to be successful. And they come back with open mind and not even trying to shove it down your throat per se, but just trying to open your eyes to a different perspective, something that you could utilize in your classroom and your immediate comeback. Like Dina said is my kids can, or that won't work. Like we need yeah, to, that won't work. Like <laughs> that, that right there just, <laughs> Come on now. I just I, I was I was of the mindset I'll I'll try about almost anything, especially with if I have a class of thirty and I know on a good day I'm only reaching nineteen of them, and that means it's eleven that I'm not reaching, and this strategy will help me reach at least five of those eleven. Like I, I'm willing to try a lot more, and I think if we get that mindset, more classrooms will become equitable because basically you've done you sat in that hour long or several hour long PD of just offering different strategies and techniques you can use. And basically what you're saying is when I walk away from here, I'm not trying any of it. Like mm-hmm. that's detrimental to students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's also something that, I mean, that idea where it's not going to work in my school and you don't know how this relates to my school. That's, I think that's a, a white educators cop out for not trying different strategies and sticking with its status quo. Um, I got to be honest, and 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 it's unfortunate when I hear that, and I think, why are you not going to at least attempt to try to make something work that you've just done some training on? I mean, it's not not everything's going to work, but at least make an effort to do so. So I hear you on that. Well, and I think to some degree, just that even that, that, you know, immediate, um, you know, head tilted back, arms crossed kind of like attitude, it bugs me because, you know, and I... Uh, and I don't, I know that not everybody will agree with me and I certainly don't go into everything blindly, but you know, if this is what your administrator's vision is for the school, then, you know, if you, you kind of have to, to get on board with that. And I know that there's, you know, to some extent it's, it's the leader's job to, to help to kind of encourage and motivate that along, but it's also your responsibility to be a part of that vision and, if you're automatically coming in with, well, my kids can't do that for you, you need to have a really strong conversation with yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just not, it's not, it's not acceptable to just 
you know, put your, put your arms up saying, no, I'm not doing this. Um, especially if it's going to be to the betterment of your students. If you ever have as a te- I'm saying this as a teacher, if that is really what you're struggling with, if you're like, I don't think my kids can do that, have an honest conversation with an administrator about why that might be. Um, because you can't just refuse to do things. It's not good for your kids. It's not good for the school. Yeah. And, and on top of that, I mean, you also can't just expect every kid to fit into the mold in which you want to teach them. You have to figure exactly. out, you know, that's not good teaching. Good teaching is figuring out what your kids need and then adapting yourself because you're the adult to their needs, not the other way around. All right. Gerard, anything else to throw out there about that? No, that's, that's just so true. And that right there is powerful. And yeah. I know for me, when I first, you know, got on Twitter and Voxer, for learning purposes, it was because I felt as though I was starting to get in a rut. Whereas it's just going through the motions on a daily basis. You're reaching the kids, you know, you can reach the other ones just eh, like hit and miss. But then, and not saying all the strategies I I needed came from Twitter or Voxer, but what it was, was the motivational piece from the conversations right. had my mind open to like what Dina just said. I can at least try to give 110% because at the end of the day, kids going to win. Right. Yeah. Twitter Voxer to me was a mindset shift. Exactly. Yes. That's what it was. It, it was taking the global perspective and applying it locally in my school. Well, and it's the thing that I like too is, and it, you know, I, I have gotten quite comfortable with being uncomfortable and there are, you know, accounts that I follow where they, they bring up things such as implicit bias. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you know, have I done this? When have I done this? And it gives me a really great perspective to examine my own practice in the classroom. And just generally speaking as a human being, because really this is, you know, we, we, yes, my, my job is to teach eighth graders how to be better readers, but really ultimately my job is to teach them hopefully how to be better human beings Mm -hmm. and how to treat people with respect and kindness and empathy and, you know, if I can't get somebody else's perspective on things and understand that my situation and their situation, although different, their situation needs to be respected. And I need, I play a role in respecting that. If I can't do that, then that's a problem. And so that following these different accounts on Twitter have been very helpful. And then it's also enabled me to feel like I have a voice in the discussion because for a very long time, I didn't feel like I had one. And you have allies. Yes. Which is important. Yes. And I just, and Doug, um, since you're another administrator, I would love to get your take on this one. I don't want to go too far off track, but I know for, for me as administrator, you can have a great relationship with your teachers and staff, but it's still that I think teachers are always going to be apprehensive of there's still the extra mile. I can't go with you there that I, I'm just not comfortable having that conversation. Whereas if I'm in a Voxer group and let's say it's 50 people in a Voxer group and it's only three or four admin and the rest are teachers, you kind of get the best of both worlds because you're having that conversation with teachers. And then in my mind, I'm internalizing, oh, so if I made this decision, that's how my teachers are probably going to take it. And then you can bail some ideas off of the teachers in that group and you feel as though you're better prepared to tackle that in your building. Whereas 
the teachers in your building may still be a little apprehensive. And some of the apprehension may come from prior admin that they've worked under in other settings. So breaking down that ball and barrier may be impossible, but you still can kind of indirectly get through it by bouncing stuff off of the teachers that you're in a Voxer group with. Absolutely. And I'll tell you this. I mean, I have different relationships with each one of my staff members. There's some that I can go a little bit deeper with and some that I, you know, are a little bit more guarded just because of the fact that I haven't built that relationship as strong for, for whatever reason, good or bad, or just, you know, because we're just different personalities and it just hasn't happened. But what I will say to that point, and I think that's a really, really, really interesting question and good thought is that you are always guarded because you don't want to say something that's going to be brought back to the teacher's lounge and said a second, a third, or a fourth time and repeated. And it's like that whisper down the lane. Doug said, what? He right. said, what? Right. Like, I'm like, no, I didn't say that at all. I said something completely different. <laughs> but when you told the story the fifth time, it came off like this. And I'm like, it, all of a sudden, and also being a male working in elementary, it, it oftentimes come, comes off as being very insensitive. And, it does. And I don't want to come off as being this insensitive jerk for lack of a better term, <laughs> but I have, and I, and I don't think it has anything to do with my first conversation with somebody, but it's the fourth conversation that a teacher or a staff member has had. And it's like, man, he is a jerk. I'm like, wait a second. That's not even close to what my intention was, nor what I said, but, but I understand that. So I think <laughs> to your point, you are a little bit more guarded with some conversations you have with staff. Um, especially certain particular staff. And then, but I'll tell you what though, I also use some of those things to my advantage. I mean, there's times where, you know, I want my true emotion and rawness to be out there because, you know, something was wrong, you know, like, so I'll tell a couple of people, you know, hopefully they'll spread the word because I'm not happy about that. And it's not something where I'm going to call a staff meeting about and say, let's all get together. And I've done that too. And I've said, I'm not happy about this or that or whatever, or send that email to everybody when it's only addressing three or four people. I've done that a few times and then it's not a good practice, but there's a need for it at times. Um, so, I mean, it goes both ways. I mean, it's, it's, it's that political game you play as an admin um, and you get better at it with experience, but no, that's a great question. All right. Anything you want to add to that? All right. I have out this idea around. So one of the things that we have in the notes is about, um, parental figures when it comes to implicit bias are there ways that we treat or think about our families differently um families of color versus our white families um anything you've experienced yeah i it's i actually had this this conversation with michelle Noel this past weekend um and one of the things that michelle. we oh, she's one of she's, my favorite people in the world she's she's just awesome she's so awesome yeah, she is. um <laughs> And one of the things that we discussed out is that, you know, there is a frequent um, implicit bias around, and Doug, I'm going to throw out the words Title I school. Oh, gosh. Um, it's, uh, it, there, is a, there is a belief that the parents do not care about their kids mm-hmm. or they don't care about what goes on in school or they don't want to spend the money on whatever because they are poor. You know, there's, there's a lot of beliefs that kind of circle around about that. And I've had conversations with people before about, you know, well, we need to go ahead and just provide this for this kid. And my first response is, well, how do you know that kid even needs that? Exactly. You know, and, and it's, it's like, well, you know, because I just kind of went with, and my response back is always, did you give the parent the option of purchasing the thing first? Because, you know, for some people, and you you have to be careful with this, culturally, p- 
you know, some cultures, the parents really do believe it is their job to provide those things for school. And maybe they didn't, they weren't even aware that they needed to. Um, But it can be incredibly insulting if you just decide you're going to provide something and don't even give the parent the opportunity to take care of it. Um, So there is, there's this belief, but for some of these parents that are working, you know, two, three jobs and relying upon, you know, family members or siblings to help take care of the kids, they just can't meet when you want to set up that conference. You know, exactly. it's just they, they don't have the availability to be able to do that. Um, I have had parents where I have said, you know, we'd like to set up a conference and they go, well, I can't come in, but I can, I can call the school on my break and talk for 15 minutes. So it's, yep. you know, and, and I heard somebody say years ago that was, that worked in counseling that she has never met a parent that did not love their kids. Now, the degree yeah, to which exactly they understand the how to <laughs> how to do that, it may differ. But, you know, parents love their kids. And if you're going to go with this parent doesn't love their child, then once again, that's a conversation you really need to have with yourself as to what do you, where did you even come up with that? Or got that right. call DFS because if it's really that bad, then there's yes. some abuse going on. I started watching the Gabriel Gonzalez thing on the, uh, I don't want to get too far off on Netflix this weekend. Oh my goodness. I want to check that out. Ooh, that's a parent that may not have liked their child, but this is a one in a million. It's very disturbing. Gerard, just throwing that out there. All right. Sorry. Anything worth throw out there, Gerard, about this parental piece? No, Dana actually hit the nail, hit the nail on the head. And uh, like you said, a lot of times, I'm just going to be honest from the, two-parent household to the most involved parents in the building to the least involved parents in the building. All the kids from all those different levels, many of them, stuff doesn't make it home because of the way they put it or lose it. So like Dina said, a lot of times those parents don't know that that this event was going on or um, this or that needs to be provided. A lot of times it's miscommunication on our part. And now a parent is being labeled um, especially from the black community, a parent is being labeled as not loving their kid or not being as involved. It's just a lot of different factors at play. And it's just not accurate. It's exactly. It's not accurate at all on any level. And I, and I, I don't understand how that, I mean, just whatever. And I I do, Dina, Dina said it well. I don't need to go into it again. But. <laughs> well, I, and I, I will, and I will add this because I've been having conversations in my own, you know, in my own circles that are not in my, not in my building per se, but just like social media and educators I know in general, I think in the education field as a general across the country, just talking to different educators, I think we really need to get back to some of the old school parental contact. Cause I think in education that is starting to lack and some of these implicit biases start getting ramped up because of that. You mean you're text messaging your parents versus calling and that sort of thing? No. Is that what I, you mean? Um, I'm saying calling call in or contacting, period, outside of just around conference times or when when the student has misbehaved. So being more in contact. Yeah, being more in contact. So yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. Like basically in a in a sense, whereas whether it be good or bad, the child always knows that there's a level of relation a level of a working relationship between the parents so certain things that they won't even try to even get away with because they know that communication piece is there and it's not going to be two months later when the parents find out about it right 
Well, I love it. When I'm like my fourth or fifth graders now, because I've been in my school for a couple of years and they've kids have been there since kindergarten and I know their parents well, because they know that I know their parents well. I'm like, you know, I'm going to call mom in two seconds. But I mean, and they're like, okay, Mr. Tim. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Come on, let's go. Because you know, mom and dad are on my side. So let's go. So I can just, we can skip the middle man. Let's just get the behavior under control. So you walk with me and we're going to figure this out. We're going to go back. <laughs> and you know what? That, that makes for, that makes for some great days and great relationship with kids. Oh, yeah. And those fifth graders will be going to middle school looking like, you know, Mr. Tim, you really helped me these past years. <laughs> yeah, we don't play games with some of my kids. Now, the ones that are brand new to my school, I got to build on those relationships, but that's that is what it is. So you're building this K through five, correct? Yeah, K to five. Yeah, we yeah. we we got four kindergarten classrooms in our building this year due to um, overcrowding, and I and I love it. And I'm I'm like, man, can we just get to know those babies? Because I've known my babies since I mean I've been there seven years, so I know all of the kind. I mean, I know. The fifth graders have been there since kindergarten. They know. They're like, Mr. Tim knows my mom and dad, like, well. So I, and I know that just makes for a level of whatever, as the school year rolled around and they're going from fourth to fifth and you've had them since kindergarten. It's like, yeah. we're just picking up where we left off. Let's rock. Yep. Let's do this. I mean, the teachers have to get to know them again, like, because it's a brand new teacher. But the teachers can also rely on me for some knowledge. And and maybe this is a later podcast. I do I'm, – I'm very um, – I don't always reveal everything about a kid to a teacher because I want them to kind of develop a relationship without knowing all of the background information that I might know. Um, And I think that that's, it's, it's, it's a hit or miss. Um, Some staff I think do better with more information. I think some staff do better with less information and it just kind of matters or just depends on the person. But I mean, I think that's a whole nother podcast, but that is, I have one whole thing here i don't know i just i wanted to talk about this for a minute and then any last notes or any last thoughts that you guys had i i did want to talk about its implicit bias when it comes to searches on google because it's something that i discovered about a year and a half ago that if you search beautiful hair and or fit people and there's probably a hundred other things that you could do the algorithms on google bring up things that are almost 100 percent white people for like the first five or six screen refreshes if you scroll down and i want that to kind of settle because i think that we need to understand that the media has and this is something that's outside of the educational sphere but it's something that we all grow up in and i think it's been now it's online but it used to be part of the commercials that we watched the tv shows that we saw um the magazines especially that we read about how implicit bias has been ingrained in us especially white people and even i think people of color since a very young age, and it's something that we have to really unlearn in order to be effective educators, in order to make sure that when we look at the kids that are in our classrooms, that we see them um, as students that are, you know, should have the same expectations and the same level of support and the same level of, um, you, you know, on every level of whatever it is that you're trying to push in your classroom. Um, and I think that's, that can be difficult for the white educator because we have just been bombarded with this idea that white straight haired people are beautiful and people that are of color and, or that have hair that isn't white or straight or many other physical features are not as beautiful. Um, so I'm just putting that out there as something to think about. Um, you guys can jump onto that or any other final thoughts, but that was kind of my final thought from this implicit bias thing, because I know growing up, those are the images that I saw and, um, it's difficult to unlearn that. It's, there's also, you know, and I've had several conversations with, with people about the whole idea of dress code and how, you know, 
people are going to perceive um, our black girls to be more mature than they are. And so they will oftentimes, um, you know, refer a black female for a dress code violation sooner than they would a white female. All the time. Um, yeah. And I have, I, I mean, I've just got, I have issues with dress codes, period, because I've, I have for years said that the dress codes tend to be sexist. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of, um, you know, if males show up violating the same things that females do, that the males are never really treated the same way that females are when it comes to, to issues with dress code. Um, but it is, um, it's a significant issue because there is a perception that if you are dressed a certain way, there is an attitude that follows that, oh, well, you know, she must be that kind of girl if she dresses like that, or he must be that kind of kid if he dresses that way. Um, that has existed for as long as I can remember before I even became a teacher. Um, so there, there are huge problems with that. And, you know, if we are, you know, automatically attaching a positively connotated word with whiteness, that is a huge problem. Huge. Yeah. All right, Gerard, you got anything, final thoughts about that, about anything, implicit mm. bias in general? Yeah, they, uh, implicit bias, dress code written all over it. I just know from my experiences, the girls, the conversation they would have with me, they were actually, they actually were correct on a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to like at the secondary level, the girls with the jeans, how, how high the holes can be and this and that. And the girls would, would, flat out tell you Mr. Folks come here for a minute look at so and so who's a boy look where his holes are same areas they they were very cognizant of that dress code and how they didn't know how to verbalize it but how implicit bias was coming into play they mm -hmm. they verb they internalized it in a different way but they were correct actually how do you feel about saggy jeans on boys but hanging out. Oh, <laughs> that's a tough one, right? You're gonna pass on that one. You're gonna pass. That, gonna that's, a whole, that's a whole. That's a whole. That's a whole. nother topic whole other for podcast a different. <laughs> yeah. All right, butt hanging out with, and butts and hoods. Let's do butts and hoods. That'll be a special ten minute podcast. Oh no, a twenty minute podcast is gonna be <laughs> when you say about hoods. I definitely want to get in that one day because. <laughs> In schools, we do a lot of theme days, but let a, let a black student ask for a hoodie theme day. It's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Butts, hoods, and jackets. <laughs> Butts, hoods, and jackets. That'll be episode uh, 35. We got to call an expert. We got to call an expert for that one. <laughs> yeah, we do. I think I think yeah. we got some on deck. <laughs> we gotta get we gotta get some dress code experts to talk to us about butts, hoods, and jackets. <laughs> All right, you guys got anything more? We're gonna, we're gonna jump off on that one. You guys that, got anything more for tonight? Uh, that right there is a good ending point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. See you later. <laughs> That's right. This is speaking educationally with uh, Doug and Dina and Gerard. Where I'm coming from. 15 years into education now, you know, what can I do to create this equitable space? And like, you know, what? And especially for those students. Um... <laughs>